If you would, turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah 7. Uh, just a reminder that next week we are not meeting. So if you come here at 7 o'clock, you'll have a prayer time on your own. So that we are not meeting next week. Robert will not have the pastries out or the coffee. And Robert, thank you for all you do. Appreciate that. Yes. <clears throat> I know we thank these guys, but I want to thank Paul Druck for all that he's done. And Nate Pletcher joined us today. So thank you guys for setting up the sound. And uh, to Ron Page, who is the ministry director. Ron, thank you for keeping me sane and in line. And then I want to thank our board, the guys that are faithfully serving you. Uh, Tim Wagner, Gail Stoller, Tom Flynn, and Mike Razor. So to these guys, thanks for... Uh, the countless hours and the amount of time they spend. They pray for you. I know that. But we won't be meeting next week. We'll resume on the 22nd. So mark your calendars. Take note. Uh, and so here we are in Nehemiah. Yes. Thank you, Tim. Oh, well, you're welcome. Yes. Well, it's what, it's what Howard Henrys calls uh, the glorification of the worm. So there you are. So let's get to chapter 7 of Nehemiah. Let me just refresh your memory if you have forgotten or you've just joined us. Nehemiah, isn't this a great book? I am just loving it, our study. We got uh, three key theological threads woven throughout this tapestry. First of all, God is sovereign. You don't want to miss that. That's going to be seen in chapter 7. Again, the people are called to be faithful and holy. Again, seen in chapter 7. And that full restoration is yet to come. And I think a hint of that's even in chapter 7 as well. The good news is I am not reading through all the names of chapter 7. <laughs> um, I'm only going to, our, our focus is going to be through the first six verses. Six through 73 of chapter 7 are identical to Ezra chapter 2. And we'll talk why that is as we, we look. But let's look at 7-1. When the wall had been rebuilt. You remember chapter 6? Turn back to chapter 6 and look at verse 15. If you recall, it says, So the wall was completed on the 12th, the 25th day of Elul, which is probably around, well, it's the first part of October is when this is done. All right, so less than 50, well, less than two months, 52 days, the wall's been rebuilt. And notice what else it says, and I positioned the doors. You remember back in chapter 6, the walls were done, but not the gates. And now Nehemiah says, it's complete. And so he packs his bags and goes home. No, he's not done. And that's what this text shows us, that he's very thorough. He's thinking through all that he needs to do. And he says, and the gatekeepers, another word for police. This, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I then put in charge over Jerusalem my brother Hananiah. You go, who is that guy? We'll look at him in a second. But this isn't the first time that we meet him. And Hananiah and some this is a difficult, uh, there's some textual variance here. Some argue this is the same guy. Uh, I think it's two different individuals based upon the pronouns. But it says, the chief of the citadel, he was a faithful man and feared God more than many do. I said to them, and that's why we think it's two, the gates of Jerusalem must not be opened in the early morning. Now I'm reading out of the Net Bible, and we'll get to this in a minute. That's another difficult 
passage to render or section to render in the text. Until those who are standing guard close the doors and lock them. Position residents of Jerusalem as guards, some as the guard stations, some near their homes. Now the city was spread out and large and there were not a lot of people in it. This is a great time to buy real estate. At that time, houses had not been rebuilt. My God placed it on my heart to gather the nobles, the officials, the people, so that they could be enrolled in the basis of genealogy. I found the genealogical records of those who had formerly returned. Here is what I found written in the record. These are the people of the province who were com coming or going up from the captivity of the exiles whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had forced into exile. They returned to Jerusalem, to Judah. Remember, Jerusalem is just the capital of this province, this Persian province called Yehud or Judah. And the text tells us at each to his own city. And again, then you go through this laundry list of descendants and telling you where they relocated, etc. It's identical again to Ezra chapter 2. What do we see going on here is that Nehemiah understands his job is not done. Yes, the walls are completed, the gates are in place, but there's a few more things he needs to do before he goes back to Susa, back to the Persian capital and reports what has transpired. Let me just show you a map here. This is not in your notes, but uh, hopefully you can see it. Uh, this is the uh, walls of Nehemiah. If I take you to Jerusalem today, I can even show you a section that still remains, which is pretty exciting. Uh, it is in this region right in here uh, that there is a portion of the walls that still stand um, what you're looking at is the city of David. Here's the Kidron Valley that comes through the Hinnom Valley. The Siloam Pool is here. Remember when Jesus tells the blind man to go wash at the pool of Siloam? It would have been down here. We know where that is. I could take you to it. It was, it was just found in 2005, 2006, which is really exciting. But if we go up the city of David, up this spine of this hill, this is called the Ophel. Uh, those who have to walk it call it the awful offal today because it, it's, it's, it's a little hard to get to. But the offal is, it just means hill or mound and leading up to the temple mound complex. And here, of course, is the temple. And so um, if I show you, this is modern Israel today. You can see the city of David here. Here's the Kidron Valley. Here, I'm sorry I don't have my pointer working today. Here's the Mount of Olives over here, all right? So the Kidron Valley coming down, which then goes down to the Dead Sea, the, the Hinnom Valley, and you can see the Dome of the Rock where the, the temple set at that time frame, all right? And that is debated by some, but I think they're wrong. <laughs> uh, so there you are. Uh, this, this is where the temple set. There's too much evidence for that archaeologically otherwise. And so again, uh, that gives you an idea of what we're looking at. Yes, Paul. The Eon Springs is pretty strategic. Is that why Jerusalem located there? Yes, hands down. Uh, this, this remember, remember, this was a Canaanite or Jebusite city way, way back. In fact, even today you can see the stones cut from the Canaanite period. Uh, and the Gihon Spring is one of the reasons it was there. It's, it's well fortified because of the valleys that surround it. Though Jerusalem 
sits kind of, even though it's on the spine, it's still sit, the mountains surrounding it are a little bit taller, which is really interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, when David looked out and saw Bathsheba taking a bath, his house is right here. And the noble homes would have been further down, so he would have been looking over the whole region. It, it makes perfect sense. So anyway, if you understand the geography, it is very helpful. Questions? Yes, Kyle. Just trying to do that, I, I was like a frame of reference. I mean, is that whole thing as big as this golf course? You know, bigger? Well, I don't know this golf course, but uh, uh, you're, you're talking a, you're, well, let me just go back. Sorry to, just humorous for a minute, those of you. <laughs> You see that little section right there? That's the, what we call the Wailing Wall. They call it the Western Wall in today. So that gives you an idea of perspective. This is mammoth. I mean, the Dome of the Rock is not one small dude. So, yeah, you're, you're talking... Uh, I, at one point, I think I mentioned how long, how wide... I don't, I'll have to look it up. I don't remember how many miles the... Uh, it's, from it's not like it's from here to downtown. No, 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 no. You could walk up from, one of the worst walks is, is, is coming out. If you come out of the Hezekiah's Tunnel down by the Ceylon Pool and you got to walk back up to here, <laughs> that's a dog. Uh, it's all uphill. It's crazy. We don't do that to people. Uh, when I take college students, we do. <laughs> uh, and then I meet him up after I take the taxi. So let's go back to the text and let's look at this. Uh, Nehemiah tells us <clears throat> he's got these gatekeepers and these are the gates uh, during the time of Nehemiah, all right, so you got the Dung Gate, which again is the, the refuse goes out into the Henan Valley. You got the Fountain Gate, you can see, uh, Water Gate, that's from Nixon era. Uh, I know, it's just awful. So you can look through the gates and they're all there. And he says, I take the gatekeepers, I take the policemen, but notice who else he mentions? The singers and the Levites. Now, elsewhere through scripture, the Levites are always mentioned first which is intriguing. And there are a lot of speculation as why. But here he's talking about guarding the walls, the gates. Why do you think he brings in the singers and the Levites? Worship. Worship? But you got the temple. Why, why do we need worshipers at the gates? We need the people to be empowered. People empowered? Because the walls are useless otherwise. The walls are useless otherwise. I don't, yeah. That's one. The singers can do that as well as the worshipers. I think you guys are on the right path. There's a couple, there's in that large paragraph, there's two possible reasons. Number one is that all of the Israelites needed to be involved, as you're saying. Even the priest needed to take part in guarding this city. But secondly, I think more importantly, and uh, Kidner in his commentary argues this, Jerusalem is a religious city. We are here, Nehemiah would argue, because of God. This city is for God's reputation. This city is to honor our, our Yahweh, right? Our Lord. And so consequently, the religious uh, personnel need to be directly involved in all that we're doing. Thoughts or other comments on that? It's intriguing, isn't it? Uh, you would, yes. Uh, 
and some would argue that is true because most non-religious folk were living outside the city, rather within the city, to attend to the temple. So that, that's, oh, that's a great, great comment, and I think you could be right there. Undoubtedly, Nehemiah understood, this is in your notes, that the security of the city rested not in walls and gates, but in its people. Remember, this was the problem with the Jebusites when they encountered David. They said, hey, we got the walls, we got the gates, so you're not going to take us. And, and David had news for them. So my question is this, why was the completion of the walls not adequate? Why is it inadequate for the defense of the city? And you got some space there. Let's just write a couple down. Why is it inadequate? Why do we need the people? I mean, some of this is obvious, but... Yes, Paul. Built so quickly, it wasn't, it wasn't a really strong structure. Yeah, I think one, the, these walls uh, aren't the best. If I could put, I'm just going to say that. Uh, this isn't the walls around Babylon <laughs> where you could ride two horse chariots side by side and race. Um, and, and we even know, if you look at the Stones from the Solomonic era versus the stones used by Nehemiah. If I show you this one section, they're small. Uh, they're not, uh, they haven't had time to carve stone, etc. Uh, Herod the Great, when he expanded the Temple Mount, started in 37 BC and he was, it was still being worked on at the time of Christ. So massive structures uh, took much more time and energy. Say that again, Steve. Strength of the wall is in the heart. Okay. And how is that? The hearts of the people are where? Okay, somebody who's, uh, say you got a, a work crew of 100 men, and you're the supervisor, and then you find yourself uh, being, uh, feeling inadequate, feeling uh, down because of, by circumstances. And you take somebody who has a relationship with God, who understands that he has a responsibility of uh, bringing unity, bringing the right spirit. Good. All right. To the people so that they can press on and complete what they start. Good. Good, nice. What about this? You said the walls aren't the best, so what are you going to need? You need people to protect them, right? You're going to need uh, folks to be involved with the protection, individuals to guard, as we're seeing. Any others? Sure. Yes. Two things we had to memorize at the Naval Academy. Two quotes. One was, men mean more than guns in the fighting of a ship. And these are the days of wooden ships and iron men. Hmm. And that's kind of, I think, analogous to me. It's, it's the men of God who are the backbone of the defense of the city, not the Did you notice the description of the two men that I'm showing my cards that Nehemiah appointed? Look what the text says. The chief of the citadel, which is probably referring to the Temple Mount itself, states he was a faithful man and feared God. <laughs> yeah. I think what you, I love it. 
thank you for that quote, I, George. I think that's right on. The, co the completion of the walls needed more than just putting the stones in place. It was equipping the people. And so we see, as Nehemiah goes forth, he appoints these two men. One is his brother. If you go back to chapter 1, look at chapter 1. <clears throat> In verse 2, it says, Anani, who was one of my relatives. He's the one who brought the report. So we know he's a man of influence. He's in a, a man of position. He knows the layout of the land very well. And he's a natural fit, not just because he's Nehemiah's brother. It's not about nepotism, I would argue. And secondly, the next guy who has already demonstrated his military prowess is being appointed. And again, as we stated, it's mentioned there in your notes, quoting from Williamson, the characteristics Nehemiah deems significant and others reflect credibility on his own scale of value. He's looking for men who fear God. Remember chapter 5? Look at chapter 5, verse 15. This is not new to the text. <clears throat> Nehemiah said, I'm not like the former governors. And that last sentence, the last clause of, of verse 15, I did not behave in this way due to, and here it is, my fear of God. He comes back in verse 19 as well. He says, listen, I feared God. And that is why uh, I'm also selecting these men. And so what it boils down to is their godliness. Right? Yes, they've got the abilities. Um, give me a B student any day of the week who's having a heart for God than an A student who doesn't seek after the Lord. <laughs> I can tell you, I mean, I can look, uh, you know, I had six, over about 6,000 students in the seven years that I taught at Cedarville. And some of my brightest stars academically have fallen very hard. And some of them, sadly, I could have told you, not surprised. They were more concerned about making a name for themselves rather than making Christ's name great. Whereas I had some B students who God is using in a mighty way. They weren't the sharpest knife in the drawer, but far greater is their heart, right? Yeah. I would contend that this is no different than today's church. The church mm. is a building. It's the structure, like the walls were the structure. Mm. But the people of the church, the strength, the godliness, the leadership, that is what God works with, not right. through the physical walls. The that is right. Amen. Well, let, can I go ahead, Gary, then I'll move forward. No. And... In fact, God didn't really need the people because in the New Testament, Christ said the stones will cry out. <laughs> I love it. Yes. You don't do it. The stones will cry yes. out. Yes. God's more powerful than we are. And Nehemiah understood that in chapter 1, didn't he? Go back and look at that prayer that he gave. Right? It's, it's Lord, this is in your hands. And, and I'm a sinner just like the rest of the people I'm <laughs> uh, hanging out with. And so he appoints these two men, as we see, and we're told he solicits the help from the local civilians. Why? They have a lot invested. Notice what the text says, right? Uh, and some, verse 3, position residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their guard stations, and some near their homes. <laughs> there are a few people living inside the city walls, and what better to have them guard their own place, right? They're, they're, they're not going to let the enemy take their... Hacienda. And so that the, that's the idea here that we see in verse 3. 
Well, we see in verse 4, again, that the city is in desperate need to repopulate. But there's something very interesting here in the text. It says that the city was spread out large, and it says at that time houses had not been rebuilt. That's a shocker. Because I can take you to any ancient city. Uh, well, we'll get to the gates in a minute. I want to show you something here. Don't look. We'll just move on. Um, let me just show you something with the gates. This is the city walls of Gezer. Just bear with me, but I want to show you something. This is the walls here of the ancient city. Notice it's, it's two, an encasement wall. If the enemy breaks or comes and starts to siege and try to break through here, you fill this section. This is storage until a time of siege. You fill it up with rocks, making it a, a much thicker wall for them to break through. Here's the gates. See the chambers of the gates? You come through. Notice this. These are houses that are embedded into the walls. Any ancient city knows that when you do the architecture and you're building the walls, you build the houses as well along with it. You move. They didn't have time to do that. The focus for Nehemiah was not building a house. It was on building the walls of this city. And, 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 and so this is, a, this is great. Now they got to go back and build it. Uh, there's a restaurant I love in the old city of Jerusalem. You can sit right out and there is Hezekiah's wall. You can sit right next to and eat. And, uh, but they've built this restaurant right up to it. And you can tell it's, it, it's been an add-on job. But it, nonetheless, it's great. And that's the idea here that, that we're looking at. The text tells us about the gate. It says, and look at this here. It says, the gates of Jerusalem must not be opened in the early morning. There's two ways to render this. I just read you the Nets rendering. One is that they are not to be left open during the heat of the day. The idea is that the gates, well, this is the Lion Gate today, should not be uh, left open during the siesta because people are sleeping. I have a real problem with that because number one, we're in October. It's not hot in Jerusalem in October. So to say this is the heat of the day doesn't really wash with me. Secondly, uh, I'm not sure about siestas. That's not that prevalent in the Middle East as some would argue. I think what we're a better way to render this, they're not to be, they're to be opened late and closed early. So only in daylight should these gates be opened. Why? Because then they can be guarded. People are awake. And, and I think that's the idea. And scholars debate this, but it's the second view that I, I'm espousing here in the text. Questions or comments on verses 3 and 4? David, are the gates and the doors the same thing? The gates and the doors are the Well, yes and no. <laughs> the, this is the gezer. And so it's three chambers. And by the way, this is a Solomonic gate because of the three chambers. You enter through here and there would be a door here, 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 and here. And so if they break through the first door into the gate, it's gate proper, then it's a killing zone because we've got guards here on these towers that can then shoot arrows down at the people who've broken into the first gate. If they make it past that one, you've got another killing zone. Most ancient cities were not attacked through the gate. It's one of the strongest defenses, but also we know the gates were at the weakest or most vulnerable spot of a city. It's not a coincidence at Hotsor, for instance, the gate is at the low spot on the tail. It's where you would easily come right up. And so they knew this better be our strongest defense. 
I don't know if that helps or not. Um, in Jerusalem, this it's not a necessarily a military zone because there's so many gates. Most ancient cities had one or two, not numerous ones like Jerusalem. But anyway, let's go back uh, and look at verse 5. So Nehemiah, and I love this, he again demonstrates his awareness of God's presence, doesn't he? He said, my God placed it on my heart to gather the nobles. This wasn't his call. I think about David who took a genealogy. Remember that? Uh, he took a census. And God spanked him hard for that. Because he wasn't trusting the Lord. He ran ahead of the Lord. Not Nehemiah. He is very careful to first look to the Lord. And a keen awareness. Why? Why does he have this awareness? Well, he, he fears God. <laughs> He's seen God's provision. And he has seen, I mean, you think about how he's seen God provide supplies, people, insight, and the enemy being thwarted, right? So as I mentioned in your notes, the purpose of gathering God's people was for the purpose of a census. It was a clear understanding of the, the population. Uh, they needed to reach an, an, a, a conclusion of where people are going to relocate within the city. And he's looking for a fair representation or an equal representation among the tribes. And so again, we go into verse 6, this long section, which is a repeat. We'll skip this. It's a repeat. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Is, is that large paragraph of your notes, the last, last sentence, in so doing, the repetition of Jewish archives serves to remind the people of their inheritance and their calling. Now, why do you repeat this? If all scripture is God breathed, why do we need to hear it again? I think it's a reminder. No, God has brought you out this new exodus into the land. He has been faithful to you. He's going to keep the, his promise to you because he's the covenantal God. And the inheritance he's given, you, you are obtaining. And so I think that's why it's being repeated. Some would argue that it's a mistake. I don't think so. I think it's very intentional. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah was one book in the old, during the, the Jewish period, first century, up to the first century. And so... Uh, it's being repeated, but again, I think it's for emphasis to show God's hand of mercy in the life of the Israelites. Well, all right, Hafidetz, so what? Let me give you three things to hang on your beak. Number one, the church must not lose sight of the importance of tradition and God's people. Can you imagine the stories from this generation ago that came out of Babylon? The sacrifices those 43,000 uh, people had made to go back to Jerusalem. Not knowing and, and then building the temple under Zerubbabel and then Ezra. The stories and it says, I, I wrote down, we benefit from the lives of older saints. Men and women who have rehearsed God's grace and provision and can impart great wisdom and insight. Rehoboam's downfall, remember in 2 Chronicles? <laughs> the older guard, the experienced guard said, Rehoboam, don't do X, Y, and Z. And Rehoboam said, oh, no, no, no. I got the millennials around me. I'll listen to them. <laughs> All right, I'll do what I want to do. And it ended up splitting his empire. I think one of the dangers of the church is to cater to only one generation. 
I'm going to be very careful what I say, but I'm going to say it. So, alas, here we are. Um, I, I, I know. I, I was involved with churches, and I know of churches that, you know, only this, if you're over 40, you're not serving on our staff. This is who we're catering to. And to some level, I understand, but the church is, is made up of all generations. It is glorious to see infants and 90-year-olds in a worship service singing music. Some we love, some we don't, but we gather nonetheless, right? And praise him together, collectively. And, and we lose so much when we push people out. And I think it's a real danger in the church that we're losing the, the lessons learned from those who've gone before us. We stand on head and shoulders of those who've sacrificed greatly. Have we not? Um... A lot of places in scripture because remember, recall, teach your children. We have to be reminded. Yes, we have to be reminded. And sadly, I I think as evangelicals, we sometimes have not done a very good job of teaching church history to the next generation and reflecting on the past um, and, and learning from those who have gone before us. I think one of the the greatest trips I've ever taken, or took, we, did, we took a group and did a church history tour of Scotland. I learned so much just gleaning from these men and women who, have sac who had sacrificed some of their, their life for us so that we could carry this torch to the next generation. And so the church must not lose sight of the importance of tradition and God's people. Second Chronicles again. Secondly, before I get myself in trouble, uh, serving the Lord entails far more than effective use of talents and abilities. This is what I was arguing earlier. Even great accomplishments do not guarantee God's continued blessings in the future. The Lord requires men and women who seek to live a godly life regardless of what might come their way. Look at Micah 6.8. Just look at this just briefly. It's in the Old Testament. Micah 6.8. I know, it's one of those minor prophet books, and that gets a little sticky wicket. But uh, if you want to just listen, it says, He has told you, O man, what is proper and what the Lord wants from you. He wants sacrifices? No. He wants you to wax eloquent with your tongue? No. He wants you to donate tons of money? No. He wants you to promote justice, to be faithful, and to live obediently before your God. That's what he desires. What does God want of you? Right there. Micah 6, 8. <laughs> and Nehemiah understood that. Uh, he's got a job to do. He's going to be handing over something that he has invested much in to these two guys with the names that start with H and end with H. <laughs> he says, I'm handing it over to you. And I don't know about you, but that's a scary thing when you're handing the baton off to somebody else. You want someone qualified to do the job. But what does he highlight? That they fear God. And that's awesome. And third thing that we see in this text that I think that we can glean today is we must not lose sight of God's presence in our lives. Whether in the challenges of life or in periods of great accomplishments, the Lord must be first and foremost. I love Psalm 114. It's not a familiar psalm. Just turn to this and 
humor me, but Psalm 114. When Israel left Egypt, when the family of Jacob left a foreign nation behind, Judah became its sanctuary, Israel his kingdom. The sea looked and fled, the Jordan River turned back, the mountains skipped like rams and hills like lambs. Why do you flee, O sea? Why do you turn back, O Jordan River? Why do you skip like rams, O mountains, like lambs, O hills? Tremble, O earth, before the sovereign master, before the God of Jacob, who turned a rock into a pool of water, a hard rock into springs of water. It was nothing for God to see a, a, a city be rebuilt in 52 days, its walls anyways. This is the one who commands all things. <laughs> He's in charge. And I love this, the line it says, He is the God of Jacob. He's a covenantal God. He guards his relationship with his people and he goes before them. And so... If you watched the debate last night and you're worried, <laughs> God goes before. If you're concerned about the state of the church in this country, God goes before. God does not need the church in the United States to do his bidding. God does not need us. Right? He did not need Nehemiah. But he chose chose fit or he selected people like Nehemiah. He's called us those who he's asked to be obedient, to fear him and stand back and allow God to do great things. Right? There's a quote at the end of your notes by John Aerosmith not related to the group. <laughs> this is a Puritan writer. He says, a heathen philosopher once asked, where is God? And you may be asking that same question this morning. Maybe it's a personal matter. Maybe it's the battle with COVID. <laughs> Maybe it's uh, the state of the country. The Christian answered, let me first ask you, where is he not? <laughs> That's our God. Father, it's a rather obscure passage, chapter 7. Most studies on Nehemiah skip over this chapter. And yet, in it, we find yet once again, Nehemiah understanding that it is character that matters most. Lord, work in our hearts. May we be men that are known as ones who fear you. Lord, men that are being used by you as, ne as you used even Nehemiah. No, we don't have a wall to restore around an ancient city. But Father, we have a task set before us. And that is to make disciples. And to establish walls of protection around your saints. Guarded by the word and empowered by the spirit. Help us to be found faithful workers, stewards, gatekeepers, Lord used by you. In Jesus' name, amen.